Last night, we were talking about the pool of discipleship, and discipleship is really the theme for us all weekend. And one point that we made last night was that it's the most important thing that we should be concerning ourselves with as followers of Jesus. If we truly believe that Jesus is everything that the New Testament tells us, that the Scriptures tell us uh, that He is, and that He's calling us to this life, then how could there be something more important than learning who He is and following Him? Uh, and yet discipleship, this, this word that many of us have heard, can sometimes not be as clear in our minds and in our lives as it should be. And so discipleship, to, to break it down to its most simple uh, definition, is living a life of devotion to Jesus. So if you're living a life of discipleship, that means that you're actively seeking to live a life of devotion to Jesus. And there's never been a better time uh, to do that than right now, because we have unprecedented freedom. And I would encourage you to study church history, even if it's just a, a brief overview of church history, what past believers have endured just to live these lives of devotion um, is without comparison to what we have today, that we can live lives of devotion to Jesus in freedom, and we have opportunity to do that, but we can miss it because we're simply ignorant of how good we have it, we're blinded by our own comfort, and the culture that we live in uh, can oftentimes steer us away from this life of devotion. So we're talking this weekend about how can we overcome those those obstacles, those hindrances that keep us from living this life of devotion. So when we talked about discipleship last night, we mentioned that there are really two dynamics. There's a pool of discipleship and there is a push of discipleship. And one of the verses we referenced, Cody actually just mentioned, Mark 3.14. Once you kind of pick up on this duality in the New Testament and with Jesus, it, it shows up again and again and again. So Jesus in Mark 3.14 appointed 12 that they might be with him, that's the pool, and that he might send them out to preach. That's the push. And that's going to that's gonna come up again and again. If we're going to respond to this, it requires action. That discipleship is not just a matter of how much you know about the Bible. It's not a, a matter of how close you feel to God if you're an emotional person. It's ultimately about are you making yourself available to Jesus and are you willing to obey Him each step of the way? It, it is about actions, not just words, knowledge, or emotions. The two commands of Jesus, the two calls of Jesus to His disciples in Matthew, do you guys remember where those were? The first and last words of Jesus? Matthew 4.19. If you... Matthew 28, 19. So if you look at those red letters in Matthew, the first time you see those red letters between Jesus and his disciples is Matthew 4, 19. Come, follow me. And that is the pull of discipleship. And Jesus is, is extending the same call to you and I today, that he's calling out to you to come and follow. And then the last words of Jesus in Matthew 28, 19 are go. And make disciples. And it's such a it's such a powerful image of what Jesus is going to be wanting us to do. So uh, the, the pull and the push of discipleship 
are really captured in those two verses in Matthew. And also, who knows John 9, 4? Does anyone have that memorized? John 9, 4? It's, it's, we're going to be talking some about um, these ideas. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in John 9. It's the story of, of where he healed the man who had been born blind. And the disciples ask him, uh, who sinned, this man or his parents? Why was he born blind? And Jesus said, neither. It wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but it was so that, um, that the work of God could be manifested, the glory of God could be manifested by his healing. And then he said, we must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no man can work. Jesus speaking to his disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me. That's what Jesus was saying to his disciples. Not, not I must work the works of him who sent me, but you are also part of this. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing you into this work that the Father has given us. And so one of the beauties of Scripture is that Jesus has given us the power or the right to become God's children. And now when we pray, remember when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, What's the first word? First two words. Our Father. We're so familiar with that that we can lose the, the power that not everyone can pray to God as our Father. But if you belong to Jesus, you can pray to God as your Father because Jesus has given you the, the power or the right to become children of God. That's what John 1.12 says. And so we have this relationship with God where we are His children and He has become our Father and we're now brothers and sisters in the faith. And so we're part of the family of God. If you belong to Jesus, you've been made part of the family. But you've also been made part of the family business. This family has a trade. It has a business that it's involved in and our Father wants you to be involved in that work, in that trade, in that family business. And so again, pull and push, it's kind of like breathing. Breathing works great if you inhale and exhale. You can't just inhale. So we're going to try this just to prove to you that it doesn't work very well. So... I want everyone to take a deep breath and hold it, no exhaling. Ready? Three, two, one. Good, hold it, hold it. That's like drawing near to Jesus. You need that. All right, draw near some more. Inhale. Doesn't it feel good? You exhaled. No. <laughs> This this only works if there's intake and outflow. Life is found when, when there's intake and outflow. And discipleship is about breathing in and breathing out. It's not one or the other. Following Jesus and living a life of devotion to Him requires us to do both. So you're going to come and follow, but you're also going to go and make disciples. You're part of the family. You're also part of the family business. What I found is that 
very few people who profess Christ will actually draw near, will actually make space in their lives and take action to draw near to Jesus and make that just a pattern of life for themselves. But even fewer will get involved in the family business. And so this is something that if, if you know is, is what God wants from you, you're going to be out of step with not just most of society, but most of people who consider themselves Christians. So you can't just look at what other people are doing to determine your discipleship. You really have to look at the scriptures and what is Jesus calling us to if you're going to live this life of come and follow and go and make disciples. What holds people back? Why don't more people who call themselves Christians understand this life of discipleship, this life of, of, of come and follow and go and make disciples? And especially what keeps us from that second part, the exhaling, going out and sharing our faith and making disciples. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We're going to spend some time there this morning. There are three things that hold us back that I think we'll see here in Mark 6. They are lack of vision, lack of heart, and lack of faith. And all of us can struggle with those three things. There are no super Christians. Um, All of us have to grapple with lack of vision, lack of heart, and lack of faith. And you see these things play out here in Mark 6. So we're going to do something similar to what we did last night, where we're going to read through this story. Specifically, we're going to read the story where Jesus feeds the 5,000. So it's in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. And we're going to read through verse 44. So that's the section of Mark 6 that we're going to be focused on. And just like last night, if I could get a volunteer who would be willing to to read those verses, Mark 6, verses 30 through 44. All right, let's hear it. Those who had been sent out rejoined Jesus and reported to him all that had been done and taught. There were so many people coming and going that they couldn't even take time to eat. So he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a place where we can be alone, and you can get some rest. They went off by themselves to an isolated spot. But many people, seeing them leave and recognizing them, ran ahead on foot from all the towns and got there first. When Jesus came ashore, he saw a huge crowd. Filled with compassion for them, Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, he began teaching them many things. By this time, the hour was late. The disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's getting late. Send the people away so that they can go and buy food for themselves in the farms and towns around here. But he answered them, Give them something to eat yourselves. They replied, We are going to go and spend thousands on bread and give it to them to eat. He asked them, How many loaves do you have? Go and check. When they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he ordered all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of fifty or a hundred. 
Then he took the loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, uh, made a blessing. Next, he broke up the loaves and began giving them to the disciples to distribute. <laughs> he also divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate as much as they wanted, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces and fish. Uh, those who ate the loaves numbered five thousand men. All right. So one practice that we did last night that we do quite often in San Diego is we will read through the passage once and then we will read through it a second time because sometimes you're going to pick up, a lot of times, you're going to pick up things the second go around that you didn't see in the first reading. And a little tool that you can use either in your own Bible reading, your own Bible study, or if you're helping other people study the scriptures is to ask three simple questions. It's what, so what, and now what? Okay, so as you're reading this story, the first question, and you want to ask them in that order. What, so what, now what? So what is simply a question of making observations? What's happening in this story? What are the details? Who are the characters? Um, what's, the, uh, what's the emotional vibe that you get in this story? There's actually some emotions in this story. And you want to start with that, but then you want to go into so what? Why does it matter? Why should you care about this story? Why did Mark care about it? Why did he put it in the Bible? And so you begin to try to understand why is it important when you ask, so what? And then now what is, what should you do about it? And now that you understand it and you know why it's important, how does it need to change the way you think and the way you live? So let's kind of be thinking about those questions, those three. What, so what, now what? As we read through it again Mark 6, verses 30 through 44. Can we get another volunteer? Okay, Josh. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages, and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread to give to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided his two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the five loaves were five thousand loaves. Alright, so thinking of this as a movie, if you're going to recreate this in a video, what's the opening scene? Who's in the opening scene? What's the location? What's happening? Jesus and his men. Yeah, so it's Jesus and his closest followers, the 12 disciples. And, and it says that they had just returned 
from being out in the villages preaching the message. And so Jesus, they're reporting back to Jesus, and Jesus is saying, great job, let's go away by ourselves for some R&R. And uh, maybe the disciples are really excited about that. So maybe you see them pulling off in the boat, just Jesus and the twelve on their way to, to get some rest and to get some time together. Jesus said, let's go to an isolated place. So that was the expectation. All right, but, but where does the tension come in here in the story pretty quickly? Right, so maybe you've got the camera on these guys as they pull away and then you pan over. And now there's like just hundreds of people running on the shore, uh, you know, looking over at the boat, trying to guess where it's going to make land. And uh, they get there before the boat, which is pretty impressive because it was a lot of people, thousands of people. And so uh, maybe there's a, a scene with, with Jesus and his disciples while they're on the water. And we don't have any dialogue here in the story, but what do you think the, the mood is between Jesus and his men there on the boat as they're on the water? Right, throughout an anchor to get some time. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. What do you guys think? We're probably kind of two mixed emotions where they're probably exhausted from a few days of work, but also excited about the fruit they were able to produce on their first mission that they were sent out on. Yeah, it was probably a, a mostly upbeat vibe that was going on there between Jesus and the Twelve, that they had done this work that he had sent them out to. It was finished. They were looking forward to getting some, some downtime with Jesus. And then the boat begins to approach shore, and they look up, and what do they see? See, a lot, the place is not isolated. Um, there are thousands of people waiting for them. Um, and if you were one of those disciples, maybe what would you be feeling as you were drawing near to shore? Frustrated. A little overwhelmed, a little frustrated, maybe a little irritated that... Uh, your plans are being interrupted by not just a few people, but thousands of people, huge crowd. Let's look at verse uh, 34. How did Jesus respond here in verse 34? What does it say? Yeah. Three things Jesus did. What did he do in, the, in verse 34? Uh-huh. He saw the large crowd. He had compassion on them. He began to teach them many things. And I think that those three things go together. So Jesus saw the crowd, but he actually saw them differently than the twelve saw them, I believe. Jesus saw them as they truly were. He saw them in their spiritual state of need. He saw that they were harassed and helpless. He didn't just see a crowd of 5,000 people. He saw a large group of people who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And because he saw them that way, he had compassion. And because he had compassion, interesting, he began to teach them many things. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on here in verse 34. 
And apparently this went on for some time because it, it's later in the day in verse 35. When it was already late, his disciples came to him and said, This is an isolated place and it's already very late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. Okay, now, did the disciples see a need? Yes, there was a real need here, that it was getting late, huge crowd, no food, and so they saw something. Did they have compassion? Did they care about the crowd here? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, We'll be generous. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt that they were really concerned that these people needed food. What's that? They probably were, but it was they, they saw a real need, and so their solution was to send the people away because they need to, to buy food for themselves to eat. And what is Jesus' response? You give them something to eat. Now, if there was one sentence that the disciples probably weren't expecting from Jesus at that moment, It's probably, you know what, you guys are right. You've done good. You've identified a a need, um, but your solution is off. We're not going to send the people away. Um, I want you to give them something to eat. And again, trying to put yourself in the the place of these disciples, how do you think you would feel at that moment? Especially if they were trying to send them away just as an opportunity to get along for them. Right. disappointing again. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, I think they said this, we only have um, uh, five loaves and two fish. So, like, we have five loaves. How can we feed all these people? So, well, at first they didn't even say that, right? What was the first thing they said? You want us to use all the five money to go buy food for them? Basically, we can't feed this crowd. We don't have what this crowd needs. And what was Jesus' response there? What do you have? What do you have? Every, every sentence, every detail is important. The sequence that it plays out is important. So first Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Their response is very logical, very true. It's, very, it's based in fact. We don't have enough to feed this crowd. And Jesus tells them, I don't want to hear what you don't have. What do you have? What do you have? Go and see. And uh, maybe they were really frustrated and grumpy at this point. So they go out and 5,000 people, they come up with five loaves and two fish. So they're reporting back to Jesus. And when they said five loaves, two fish, how do you think they said that? If it was you, how would you think that you would say that? Yeah, maybe you would see Jesus, I'm right. Five loaves, two fish. That's all we've got for this huge crowd of people. We did what you told us. We went out, we took an inventory. This is, this is what we have. And then Jesus explained to him what they were going to do, right? No. What does he say next? Sit down. Have the people sit down in, in groups of uh, 50 and 100. 
And so uh, the disciples are going back out. And now they're organizing the, the crowd and getting them uh, staged in these groups of 50. Uh, and then Jesus takes the loaves and the fish and he begins, he blesses them, he begins to break them, and he begins to hand the pieces to the disciples. And they go out and feed the people. Right? That's the way it's described. That you would walk up to Jesus, he would break some bread, he would break some fish, he would hand it to you if you were one of the disciples. And then you would carry that out to the crowd and then the next disciple and the next disciple and then people were being fed. You would have to come back. You'd get your next bit of bread and bit of fish and you would carry that out and you would feed the next person. And this just happened over and over until we get to verse 42. They all ate and were satisfied. Not only that, verse 43, they picked up broken pieces of fish and bread that were left over, and they had 12 baskets full. Now, there were 5,000 men who ate the bread. All right, so what's the point? There's a lot of really cool stuff in here. Uh, First of all, they, focused, they had to focus on what they did have, not on what they did not have, or not on why they couldn't do it. Jesus had given them a mission. He had given them work to do, which was feed the people. An impossible job. They did not have enough to feed the people, and they knew they did not have enough. And that alone was reason to not go further. Why should we even try to feed the people? We don't have enough. Um, But Jesus had told them, you feed them. Their response was, we don't have enough. Jesus' answer was, what do you have? You have something. So take what you have and bring it to me. And and Jesus will bless and multiply that. But the way he blesses and multiplies it is also very important. So he didn't just... Take the five loaves, the two fish, say a prayer, wave his hand over it, and then suddenly there was a mountain of bread and fish, and everybody could see, wow, Jesus is going to multiply this so that everyone has enough. Um, The miracle happened as they were feeding. That's a very important truth. The, The miracle happened as they were feeding the people. It was being multiplied. So every time they went out and fed someone and came back, a miracle happened. Then they went out and fed someone, came back, another miracle happened. So much so that it doesn't seem that the crowd or the disciples really even appreciated what was happening until the very end. And now another detail, how many baskets are left over? Twelve, one for each disciple to stare at. And remember, this started with five loaves and two fish. Not only did we feed the people, but I'm staring at a basket of bread and fish that's in excess of what we needed. All right, so if you understand 
vision, if you understand what Jesus is calling you to, you feed the people. You make disciples. And you're willing to get your heart where Jesus' heart is. That the people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And you can't just send them away. You have to feed them. And you're willing to take action. Do an inventory. What do you have? What do you know? What can you bring to Jesus so that He can bless it and multiply it? Jesus will use you. It it will be enough. You have enough right now to make disciples. If you bring it to Jesus and allow Him to bless it, and the miracle is going to happen as you go. You're not going to suddenly wake up and know the Bible really good and have the answer to everyone's question and know how to share your faith exactly the way that you need to. But as you go, Jesus will be working miracles to teach you, to give you the inspiration that you need and to use the work that you're doing so that the people are fed and satisfied. All right, well, here's kind of how it's looked in my life because I wanted to share just a couple of practical stories. Um, When I was 21, very, very young and just getting started with Cecil, I was very aware of my own uh, inadequacy when it came to making disciples. I was just trying to figure out which direction was up in my own faith. And now... Cecil and others were encouraging me to share my faith. When I first met Cecil, I thought I had this picture of uh, the Karate Kid, or um, these are the movies of my time, the original Karate Kid, and Star Wars, especially the second one where um, he goes and he learns from uh, Yoda on the uh, the island or the uh, the planet. And I thought, well, I'm going to learn from this wise older man spend about 10 years with him, really figure things out, and then God's going to be able to use me. And very quickly, I saw people my age who were leading Bible studies and teaching others how to walk with Christ. And uh, that was a, a real paradigm shift for me. And Cecil began to encourage me and challenge me, start sharing your faith. And one thing that I remember him telling me was, you're very self-conscious about what you don't know and what you don't have, but they don't care. They're not judging you in that way. Um, they're actually looking to you, or they're looking up to you, if you'll, if you'll share your faith with them. And that really helped me, just understanding, don't go off your own knowledge of what you don't have. Uh, be willing to bring what you do have, to offer it, and um, God will use it. People will, will grow because of it. The greatest rebuke and challenge I ever received was from a guy who I don't believe was a Christian. I worked for uh, years at a small machine shop. We built uh, custom machinery for large manufacturers, and the shop manager was a, a crusty old guy named Butch who, uh, who looked the part of his name. He would, uh, his hair would be slipped straight back, and he always had a cigarette uh, dangling from his mouth, uh, and I was fresh out of college, so I was our design guy. I was supposed to draft the blueprints, come up with uh, the concept, 
and then work with the guys out in the shop who were actually building the equipment. Um, they hired me because it was a startup company and they could pay me nothing, um, which was great because I didn't know anything. And I was very aware of that. And so after about three months, Butch uh, grabbed me by the arm as I was walking through the shop one day and he, he pulled me aside and uh, I can still smell his breath. He, he was right in my face and he said, uh, do you know what your problem is? And I thought, this isn't good. This is not going to be a good conversation. Uh, but what he said next shocked me. Didn't expect it. He said, you're too proud. Too proud? I don't know anything. I'm not proud. Um, he says, you don't know what you're doing. And we all know you don't know what you're doing. But until you jump in there and learn, you're not going to be able to give these guys what they need. So make your mistakes, figure it out so that this company can grow. And man, that was freedom. I felt freedom. I thought, okay, um, I don't have to know it. I don't have to act like I know it. Um, they know I don't know it, which is good. So I can make lots of mistakes and just learn. Start learning. And the quicker you decide to start making mistakes and learning, the, the faster you're going to grow and the better you're going to become at sharing your faith and making disciples. There's no way around it. There's no way to skip those awkward mistakes that have to be made. And, and I did. I made a lot of mistakes. I think I probably cost that company, without exaggeration, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, with mistakes that I made. But I worked with them for eight years, and I made them far more money than that, than what I cost them. But there's always a growth process, and making disciples is the same way. So just jump in. Don't be proud. It's not humility that's keeping you from sharing your faith. It's actually pride. You don't want to look foolish. You don't want to make mistakes. Um, you're going to make mistakes, and that's okay. Jesus will protect people even from your mistakes. So jump in and start learning. Um, how that looked for me is just starting where I was. So I was reading the Bible at that point. I just began to invite people to read the Bible with me. That was a, an easy first step that I could take. I was going out to Bible studies or gatherings. I just started inviting people to come out to these meetings with me, and then we would talk about what we were learning. Uh, very simple, very easy, but that was a, a conscious step that I began to take. Um, I was eating lunch and dinner every day, so I began to invite people to have lunch and dinner with me and try to talk about faith at some point in that conversation. Uh, things that I was already doing, I just tried to start bringing people along with me. So it wasn't um, a very dramatic change where I just started making disciples. Um, I just started trying to feed one, one bread, one fish at a time. And the Lord was teaching me. You know, people are wired for social interaction. We're social creatures. So it's already built in. People will want to spend time with you. Um, and if God is working in their life, they'll be interested in what you're learning and, and what you have to share. 
That went on for seven years, but what I found was that most of the people that I was helping did not really stick with it. They did not um, really go all the way with Jesus. And I began to, to be frustrated by that um, because I was spending a lot of time with people and I wanted people to have the same love and commitment to Jesus that, that I was trying to live. And so finally, um, it dawned on me that maybe I should be praying specifically that God would bring someone into my life who had the same heart that I have. Not just pray that I can help someone, but pray that God would give me someone of like heart that I can invest in. So I began to pray specifically, Lord, would you bring me with someone who wants to follow you just like I want to follow you with the same passion and intensity? Two weeks later, um, I met a guy named John Snyder. Some of you may know John. Uh, he's still following the Lord, making disciples. Uh, he's my best friend. We're still connected. He lives on the East Coast. I'm on the West Coast. But we are brothers. And I believe it's because God finally woke me up. If you want this, pray. Pray and ask God to give you this kind of relationship. And for you, it may not be answered in two weeks, but I believe God will answer it. If you're giving your life and you're praying, God will use you to make disciples. So here are some practical takeaways for you guys as we wrap it up. How can you begin living out a life of devotion in this area of the push, the push of discipleship? One is get clarity on the family business. If you don't understand the family trade, it's going to be really hard for you to get good at it. So learn what is the family business Two things that you can do. First, study the life of Jesus. Because Jesus came down on mission. He lived his life for the family business. So whatever Jesus was giving his life to is what he's calling us to give our lives to. You can also do a shorter version of that by studying the mission statements of Jesus. Do you guys know what I mean by the mission statements of Jesus? Several times in the Gospels, Jesus made statements like, The Son of Man has come. Two, and then you can fill in the blank. So you guys can probably remember some of these. So what are some of the mission statements of Jesus that you can remember? Right, Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's a mission statement of Jesus. I came to do this. Uh, another one is... is exactly. And you can just abbreviate it. Mm-hmm. Came to bear witness of the truth. Yes, in John 18. There's, there's probably 10 to 15 of these. So just try to find what are these verses that where Jesus himself goes on record. Here's why I'm here. Here's what I came for. That's going to give you a, a good picture of what is the family business. That's one thing that you can do. The second thing is become the model. You cannot reproduce what you are not. And so an exercise that I encourage young men and women to do is get a blank piece of paper and start writing out if, if you were going to be discipling someone and they, they were just five stars all the way down, what would be some of the qualities that they would have? What would be some of the practices that they were willing to engage in? So maybe it's seek first the kingdom. Um, maybe it's they're available, they want to meet, they want to grow, they're eager, they're asking good questions. 
Um, they're reading their Bible every day. So make a list of your dream disciple. If you were going to be helping someone. And then use that as a mirror. So you have to sort of psychologically trick yourself. Think about somebody else and all the good qualities that, that you would love to see in someone else's life. And then look at that paper and ask, is this me? Does this describe my life? Am I actually matching these, these descriptions that I hope someone else will have? Uh, you can become the model. And we talked about that last night, that Jesus is the reality, that he wants to use us as the roadmap that others can look at and see a life of devotion to Jesus. The third thing you can do is pray and ask Jesus to give you a person of peace. And in Matthew 10, a person of peace is someone who welcomes the message, who welcomes you as the messenger, and who wants to be involved in the mission. So start praying. Lord, would you bring someone into my life who is interested in this message, wants to hear, hear it from me, wants to learn it together, and wants to be involved in this mission that you've given us. There's not very many people that are going to be that way. So pray and ask God to give you one, a person of peace. And then start today with what you have. What do you have? That's the first step. Jesus said, go and see. So be thinking about what do you have right now that you could bring to Jesus and allow him to use. You have something. If it's five loaves and two fish, it may not be much at all, but maybe you've got time, maybe you've got a vehicle, maybe you have a house. Um, figure out what you do have and start bringing it to Jesus so that he can use it to help others come to know him and follow him. So those are four steps that you can take today. Get clarity on the family business. Become the model. Go through that exercise of the dream disciple on the, the sheet. Pray and ask Jesus to send you a person of peace. And then start with what you have. Do an inventory. What do you have? Go and see. So I hope what you hear this morning is that making disciples is doable. It is the, imp it is the impossible job. Feeding the 5,000 was impossible. And yet it's doable. Because Jesus is the one who has called you to it, and He's the one who's going to be willing to multiply so that what you do have becomes enough. So I want you to know that it's doable, and Jesus wants you to help others follow Him. It's all, it's all part of being part of the family and part of the family business. So go and make disciples. That's the push of discipleship. And you cannot be a disciple without it. And just like we talked about last night, there's never been a better time to make disciples. Never been a better time to be a disciple. There's never been a better time to make disciples. The only thing holding us back is ourselves. Um, so hopefully that'll become more and more a part of your life. The, the, the intake and the outflow as you follow Jesus and live this life of devotion he wants us to express it in those two primary ways. Will we draw near to Him to listen and learn? And then will we go out to share with others and be part of this family business? So I'm going to wrap it up there.